dog, she legit, she a savage Cause she got her own, if she wanna, she can have it She a real one, smart girl with a fatty But she must be reading all the books for the baddies Goddamn, she a baddie Yeah, she must be reading all the books for the baddie Goddamn, she a baddie Yeah, she must be reading all the books for the baddies Sorry, but I'm not fucking sorry at all because that intro song gets me every single time. Oh my God. When I listened to that, I literally wish that it was a full song and I would fucking play that shit in my car when I'm getting ready in the morning, when I'm in the gym, when I'm going to the grocery store. I would listen to that every single place I go. Just gets me like super pumped up. If you couldn't tell already, I'm about to ask 6 a.m. to make that shit into a full song because I'm in love with it. But welcome back, baddies. I am so excited, as I am every single freaking time, to come on here and talk about the latest book that I have been reading that has been changing my life, changing my perspective, and this time it is The Subtle Art of Giving, sorry, <laughs> not giving a fuck. Sorry, that was like myself kind of getting in there. I just, I give a fuck way too much. I'm gonna need two shots in my cup, like Lizzo says, you know, I really do. Um, but this amazing book is from Mark Manson. And when I grabbed this book, obviously it's got like this bright orange cover, so it automatically drew me to it. And also it had the word fuck on it. And that is like another reason why I was like, have to get this book. Um, but when I picked it up, I didn't really know who Mark Manson was, so... I definitely had to do a little bit of research on who he was. Um, so I'll give you a little backstory about who he is, just so, you know, we're kind of on the same page. So when I Google searched him, it came up that he is an American self-help author and blogger. Um, I read a little bit of like an article that he had um, saying that he kind of just like fell into it and that he had like a cubicle job for a while. He doesn't have any formal training in psychology. And then, and then as I scrolled down, it said, how do I cancel my match subscription? <laughs> so I guess people are like also searching match.com. I don't know. That's weird. But he seems like a really cool guy. I fell in love with his writing because he uses the F word a lot and he's just very blunt and open, kind of like non-bullshit type of guy. And I can always appreciate that. So one of the first pages just kind of says a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. And it's not too long of a book. It's about 200-ish pages. Um, don't ask me why the fuck it took me so long to read the book. I have been doing a lot lately and that's my excuse um <laughs> so it's an awesome book like I said and we will kind of just like jump right into it he starts the first chapter talking about this guy Charles Bukowski who was like this alcoholic womanizer chronic gambler you know deadbeat cheapskate 
he was also a poet and he just kind of goes into saying he's probably like the last person you would ever want to take advice from but he tells a little story about this man he spent all of his life pretty much just drinking doing bullshit gambling treating people like shit and 30 years went by of his life like this meaningless by the time he was 50, after pretty much a lifetime of failure and self-loathing, an editor at a small independent publishing house took an interest in him. The editor couldn't offer Bukowski much money or promise of sales, but he had a weird affection for the drunk loser, so he decided to take a chance on him. This was the first real shot Bukowski had ever gotten and was probably gonna be his only one, so he said, sure, why not? He ended up signing a contract and wrote his first novel in three weeks. It was dedicated to no no one and this would make Bukowski a novelist and poet and he would go on to publish six novels and hundreds of poems selling over two million copies of his book. His popularity defied everyone's expectations particularly his own and as we take a look at stories like Bukowski's we kind of think of it in this like wow you know he never gave up he never stopped trying he always believed in himself but that was actually like the complete opposite um on his tombstone it said it read don't try and Despite the book sales and the fame, Bukowski was a loser and he knew it and his success stemmed not from some determination to be a winner but from the fact that he knew he was a loser, accepted it, and then wrote honestly about it. He never tried to be anything other than what he was. The genius in Bukowski's work was not in overcoming unbelievable odds or developing himself into a shining literary light. It was the opposite. It was his simple ability to be completely unflinchingly honest with himself, especially the worst parts of himself, and to share his failings without hesitation or doubt. This is the real story of Bukowski's success, his comfort with himself as a failure. Bukowski didn't give a fuck about success. Even after his fame, he still showed up to poetry readings, hammered and verbally abusing people in his audience. That's hilarious, um, but also not. It's really fucked up. But, you know, he was being himself. He still exposed himself in public and tried to sleep with every woman he could find. Fame and success did not make him a better person, nor was it by becoming a better person that he became famous and successful. Self-improvement and success often occur together, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're the same thing. I feel like this is such a big thing with like a lot of celebrities and everything like everyone expects them to be these amazing people when they become famous and then we hear these like tragic stories about people just being fucking assholes and it's like okay just because they're famous doesn't mean that they're automatically going to be like this better person and some people just really don't care. Our culture today is obsessively focused on unrealistically positive expectations. Be happier, be healthier, be the best, better than the rest. Be smarter, faster, richer, sexier, more popular, more productive, more envied and more admired. Be perfect and amazing and crap out 12 karat gold nuggets before breakfast each morning while kissing your selfie ready spouse and two and a half kids goodbye. Then fly your helicopter to your wonderfully fulfilling job where you spend your days doing incredibly meaningful work that's likely to save the planet one day. 
God, is that not just Instagram in like a nutshell? Everyone's just like absolutely perfect and their life is perfect and they're going to the gym every day and they're eating healthy and their skin looks flawless and they're just doing amazing philanthropical, is that a word? I don't know work and they're just you know doing everything that's just absolutely incredible and amazing all the time and it just makes me sick <laughs> not because they're doing good things but it's like Jesus I mean I honestly couldn't live my life making it look perfect in every single sense like I would lose my mind if I tried to do that shit I'm already losing my mind and then trying to be perfect on top of that like Lord help me. But what I love is when he says this here, but when you stop and really think about it, conventional life advice, all the positive and happy self help stuff that we hear all the time is actually fixating on what you lack. It lasers in on what you perceive your personal shortcomings and failures to already be and then emphasizes them for you. You learn about the best way to make your make money because you feel like you don't have enough money already. You stand in front of the mirror and repeat affirmations saying that you're beautiful because you feel as though you're not beautiful already. You follow dating and relationship advice because you feel that you're unlovable already. You try goofy visualization exercises about being more successful because you feel as though you aren't successful enough already. And I feel like there's like some truth in this and then like some not. Like when I look in the mirror and tell myself I'm beautiful, it's because like I actually do think I look beautiful. And I take that moment to like realize it and be like wow like you actually don't look homeless and you look cute today and that makes me feel good just to take a moment to like you know feel good about yourself but I definitely see where he's coming from because when you're hyper focusing on making money like that's really fixating on your lack of money and then it makes money like this huge idea that just takes up so much time and space in your mind and you're not actually thinking about the positives of it or like okay well I have a job that I enjoy and I might not make bow coops of money but like I enjoy this and it's a means to an end like I'm able to pay for my bills and buy myself some things here and there and all of this stuff and we're just like fixating on like not having enough of everything and then it says, like, ironically, this fixation on the positive, on what's better, what's superior, only serves to remind us over and over again of what we are not, of what we lack, and of what we should have been but failed to be. And it says, after all, no truly happy person feels the need to stand in front of the mirror and recite that she's happy, she just is. And that's very true. I think what I do are, like, affirmations and it's just kind of grounding myself and reminding myself of these things because I don't necessarily stand in the mirror and say, oh, I'm happy, but I stand in the mirror or just like stand in a moment of silence and just think like, wow, I'm grateful. I'm blessed. I'm excited to be alive. I'm excited for my future. I'm excited for today because I feel like there's so much that we do an autopilot that we stop realizing really every little nice moment of the day that we get to experience. So I see where he's coming from, but like, it depends. If you do like affirmations and stuff during the day, like don't put yourself down and think that you're like hyper-focusing on 
shit that you don't have or that you're not happy because like sometimes you're just reminding yourself. It says everyone in their TV commercial wants you to believe that the key to a good life is a nicer job or a more rugged car, more rugged car, or a prettier girlfriend or a hot tub with an inflatable pool for the kids. The world is constantly telling you that a path to a better life is more, 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 buy more, own more, make more, fuck more, be more. You are constantly bombarded with messages to give a fuck about everything all the time. Give a fuck about a new TV. Give a fuck about having a better vacation than your coworkers. Blah, 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 blah. Why? My guess, because giving a fuck about more stuff is good for business. And that's true. I mean, it's all marketing. The problem is that giving too many fucks is bad for your mental health. It causes you to become overly attached to the superficial and fake, to dedicate your life to chasing a mirage of happiness and satisfaction. The key to a good life is not giving a fuck about more. It's giving a fuck about less. Giving a fuck about only what is true and immediate and important. A the fuck men. That's what I've been trying to exercise more is like healthy detachment from things like I'll be driving down the road and see like this beautiful car and I'm like wow like that would be nice to have this beautiful car and then like I just think to myself okay but like what kind of happiness is that gonna bring me I mean like don't get me fucking wrong I would like totally love to be bumping in like a bomb ass car and just looking fly as fuck driving down the road but like truly what is that really going to do for me? And I just kind of try to remind myself that I don't need all of this extra stuff to be happy. What I really just want to do is go and travel. And yeah, that's pretty much the only thing I really want. <laughs> travel with Tootie, my dog. So then he talks about the feedback loop from hell. <laughs> There's an insidious quirk in your brain that if you let it, it can drive you absolutely batty. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. You get anxious about confronting somebody in your life. That anxiety cripples you and you start wondering why you're so anxious. Now you're becoming anxious about being anxious. Oh no, double anxiety or double anxious. Now you're anxious about your anxiety, which is causing more anxiety. Quick, where's the whiskey? Holy shit, that is me. When I think about it, it's literally my anxiety that gives me anxiety. And like my anxiety comes out of nowhere and it's for no reason. So like imagine how much fun that is. It's not. Um, and then it says, or let's say you have an anger problem. You get pissed off at the stupidest, most insane stuff and you have no idea why. And the fact that you get pissed off so easily starts to piss you off even more. And then in your petty rage, you realize that being angry all the time makes you shallow and mean and you hate this. You hate it so much that you get angry at yourself. Now look at you. You're angry at yourself getting angry about being angry. Fuck you all. Here, have a fist. <laughs> I just like love how he writes. It's just funny because it's so visual for me. But that's true, especially when like, you know, when something happens, like you get your like shirt caught on like a drawer or something and it's like after you're already angry and then like just little shit then starts happening and then like makes you even more angry and then you're ready to just like punch something or like me cry. Um, so that is so true. It's even better like when you're about to get your period too. So you're like already emotional and then like that happens and then you, everything just makes you angry and want to cry. Shout out to all my girls out there. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. 
So that's his explanation of the feedback loop from hell. And chances are you've engaged in it more than a few times. And I know I probably do it uh, once a day. Um, but that's the beauty of being human. There are very few animals on earth that have the ability to think cogent thoughts to begin with. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't know. I'll look it up after. But we humans have the luxury of being able to have thoughts about our thoughts. So I can think about watching Miley Cyrus videos on YouTube and then immediately think about what a sicko I am for wanting to watch Miley Cyrus videos on YouTube. Ah, oh, the miracle of consciousness. Now here's the problem. Our society today, through the wonders of consumer culture and hey, look at my life is cooler than yours, social media, has bred a whole generation of people who believe that having these negative experiences, anxiety, fear, guilt, etc., is totally not okay. I mean, if you look at your Facebook feed, everybody there is having a fucking grand old time. Look, eight people who got married this week and some 16-year-old on TV got a Ferrari for her birthday and another kid just made $2 billion inventing an app that automatically delivers you more toilet paper when you run out. Meanwhile, you're stuck at home flossing your cat and you can't help but think your life sucks even more than you thought. See, this is just like the terrible part of social media too. I love social media, don't get me wrong. That's how I get to interact with my baddies and I get to post stuff and, you know, connect with a larger community of people. But we always put out the best versions of ourselves. It says, but now if you feel like shit for even five minutes, you're bombarded with 350 images of people totally happy and having amazing fucking lives. And it's impossible to not feel like there's something wrong with you. He says, it's the last part that gets us into trouble. We feel bad about feeling bad. We feel guilty for feeling guilty. We get angry about getting angry. We get anxious about feeling anxious. What is wrong with me? This is why not giving a fuck is so key. This is why it's going to save the world and it's going to save it by accepting that the world is totally fucked and that's all right because it's always been that way and will always be that way. By not giving a fuck that you feel bad, you short circuit the feedback loop from hell. You say to yourself, I feel like shit, but who gives a fuck? And then as if sprinkled by magic fuck giving fairy dust, you stop hating yourself for feeling so bad. I love this explanation and like it's kind of like a way to like a little bit of advice like just accept that you have emotions and feelings we're blessed to be able to have emotions and feelings about different things that's what makes life interesting and fun and sometimes shitty but if we didn't have the negative with the positive we wouldn't realize how beautiful these positive things are we wouldn't realize how blessed we truly are you have to have the negative also to make the positive as great and grand as it is. Stress-related health issues, anxiety disorders, and cases of depression have skyrocketed over the past 30 years despite the fact that everyone has a flat screen TV and can have their groceries delivered. Our crisis is no longer material. It's existential. It's spiritual. We have so much fucking stuff and so many opportunities that we don't even know what to give a fuck about anymore. See, this is what kind of like gets me as like a creative person is I love to create 
but like my mind wants to fucking explode because like there's a million different things that I want to use my creativity on. Like I enjoy painting. I fucking love my podcast. Like I love to write. I love to do like a million different things. I'm an actress. I, you know, so for me, like my head is ready to explode every single day because I'm like, what do I put my creativity to today? Like, what can I do? What can I get done? And it's kind of like opportunity when you have so much of everything, you're just like overwhelmed and you don't even know where to start. And this is the part that really kind of spoke to me too. It says, because there's an infinite amount of things that we can now see or know There's also an infinite number of ways we can discover that we don't measure up and that we're not good enough, that things aren't as great as they could be, and this rips us apart inside. Oh my gosh, that's like so true, and it's heartbreaking. The desire for more positive experience is itself a negative experience, and paradoxically, the acceptance of one's negative experience is itself a positive experience. This is a total mindfuck, so I'll give you a minute to unpretzel your brain and maybe read that again. Wanting positive experience is a negative experience. Accepting negative experience is a positive experience. It's what the philosopher Alan Watts used to refer to as the backwards law. The idea that the more you pursue feeling better all the time, the less satisfied you become, as pursuing something only reinforces the fact that you lack it in the first place. The more you desperately want to be rich, the more poor and unworthy you feel, regardless of how much money you actually make. The more you desperately want to be sexy and desired, the uglier you come to see yourself, regardless of your actual physical appearance. The more you desperately want to be happy and love, the lonelier and more afraid you become, regardless of those who surround you. That makes me so sad. You know, people who are just like really wanting love and like the more you want it, the more it's just like running the fuck away from you. Oh my god. As the existential existential philosopher Albert Camus said, and I'm pretty sure he was on LSD at the time, you will never be happy if you continue to search for what happiness consists of. You will never live if you're looking for the meaning of life. Or put more simply, don't try. This is a funny part. He says, now I know what you're saying. Mark, this is making my nipples all hard, but what about the Camaro I've been saving up for? What about the beach body I've been starving myself for? After all, I paid a lot of money for that app machine. What about the big house on the lake I've been dreaming of? If I stop giving a fuck about those things, well, I'll never achieve anything. I don't want that to happen, do I? So glad you asked. Ever notice that sometimes when you care less about something, you do better at it? Notice how it's often the person who is the least invested in the success of something that actually ends up achieving it. Notice how sometimes you stop giving a fuck, everything seems to fall into place? What's with that? What's interesting about the backwards law is that it's called backwards for a reason. Not giving a fuck works in reverse. If pursuing the positive is a negative, then pursuing the negative generates the positive. The pain you pursue in the gym results in better all-around health and energy. The failures in business that are what lead to a better understanding of what's necessary to be successful. This is like my literal, the words that I live by, like you have to go out and do something and experience the negative from it because that's what you learn from. Like that's what gets you better and pushes you and and shit, that's just like literally the most important key to everything is just fucking do it. 
Being open with your insecurities, paradoxically, makes you more confident and charismatic around others. That's like the second time I've said that word. He must like really like that word, paradoxically. I'm going to start using that a lot now. Just watch. The pain of honest confrontation is what generates the greatest trust and respect in your relationships. Suffering through your fears and anxieties is what allows you to build courage and perseverance. This is like when I like knew I loved to be in front of people and I loved theater and I loved performing and acting and everything but like during a time growing up I got so nervous being in front of people and I was like oh my god like I love this so much but it's making me so nervous like if I love it this much why why am I getting so scared to be in front of people but the more that I pushed myself to do it and the more that I just got out there and said fuck it and was still anxious as fuck and probably stuttered and wanted to cry but once I got through that initial feeling, I had the most confidence in the world. Like I had the time of my fucking life when I was performing. And then once you do that and you know that you can do it, you build this confidence in yourself and then you're like a fucking unstoppable. Everything worthwhile in life is one through surmounting the associated negative experience. Any attempt to escape the negative, to avoid it or squash it, or silence it only backfires. The avoidance of suffering is a form of suffering. God, is that not the fucking truth? So like my mom taught me this growing up and I would tell her like, oh, I'm like really anxious about like something that's coming up. Like I'm really anxious about like the doctor. When I was a kid, I hated to go to the doctor. Now I've been to the doctor like 20 million fucking times after cancer. So that shit, I'm like, whatever. Tell me I'm fucking dying doc. Like already heard it before. Sorry, that was kind of dark. Um, but what I was getting at was my mom taught me that if there was something that I was anxious about, she'd be like, well, when, when is this going to happen? I'd be like, oh, it's going to happen in like a week. And she's like, well, then stop thinking about it. And when it gets closer to that day or the day before, then you can worry about it because you're ruining your entire life and time up to that point. Just like, exhausting yourself over being anxious when you don't even have to deal with it then. I don't know if that like really makes sense with that, but like that's kind of what I get from it. Don't avoid the suffering and the anxiety. Just put it aside until you can deal with it and then deal with it in that moment. Like just don't let it take over and consume you. And suffering at the end of the day is life and the better you get at overcoming that and working through it and moving through it the easier and more pleasant your life will be he says pain is an an instricable thread in the fabric of life and to tear it out is not only impossible but destructive attempting to tear it out unravels everything else with it try to avoid pain to try to avoid pain is to give too many fucks about pain. In contrast, if you're able to not give a fuck about the pain, you become unstoppable. And that I totally agree with. The more you just accept something, this, the more that it stops controlling you and has the ability to control you. This is kind of just like how I dealt with my cancer situation. Like once I had come to, you know, the realization that this was my life now at the time, I didn't allow 
it to control the choices that I made for myself anymore. And I pretty much just accepted it as what it was. Like, this is my life and I've got to move through it and I can't change it. And as soon as I accepted that, everything got easier to deal with. It just became taking like one step at a time. And the amount of stress that I was able to release and the amount of worry and anxiety I was able to give up by just accepting my life and my fate, I... It changed my whole entire life, that experience and learning that. Then he goes to saying, perhaps there was a time in your own life when you simply did not give a fuck and excelled to do some extraordinary height. For myself, quitting my day job in finance after only six weeks to start an internet business ranks pretty high up there on my own. Didn't give a fuck. So there, we've got some like backstory about him too there. Um, same with deciding to sell most of my possessions and move to South Africa. Fucks given? None. Just went and did it. These moments of non-fuckery are the moments that most define our lives. I feel like this is so true because when I left my job working at the mall, I was a supervisor at a clothing store and I was working on this acting project and I didn't have enough like paid time off or any time off at all anymore. And I just said, fuck it. Like I'm still going to do this acting gig because obviously that's my career choice. They told me, okay, well, if you don't show up for work, then we're demoting you or whatever. And I was like, okay, fucking demote me then, which I didn't say, fuck it, demote me. I said, fuck you. I'm not coming back then. And ended up putting in my two weeks and I left. And then I went and found my restaurant serving job where I met my ex-partner and we started dating like a year or so after I started working there. And then that completely changed the course of my life. Like we traveled to a ton of different countries. I experienced so much like, yeah, it wasn't all fucking fun and games all the time, but like I grew so much from making that jump of just ending that job and leaving and saying, fuck it. Like that was such a huge moment in my life that was a catalyst for even this podcast. So fuck it, quit your job. That's what we're saying pretty much. To not give a fuck is to stare down life's most terrifying and difficult challenges and still take action. While not giving a fuck may seem simple on the surface, it's a whole new bag of burritos under the hood. I don't even know what the fuck that sentence means, but I don't give a fuck. A bag of burritos sounds awesome, so let's just go with it. Most of us struggle through our lives by giving too many fucks in situations where fucks don't deserve to be given. We give too many fucks about the rude gas station attendant who gave us our change in nickels. We give too many fucks when a show we liked was canceled on TV. We give too many fucks when our coworkers don't bother asking us about our awesome weekend. Meanwhile, our credit cards are maxed out, our dog hates us, and Junior is snorting meth in the bathroom. Yet we're getting pissed off about Nichols and everybody loves Raymond. Look, this is how it works. You're gonna die one day. I know that's kind of obvious, but I just wanted to remind you in case you'd forgotten. You and everyone you know are going to be dead soon, and in the short amount of time between here and there, you have a limited amount of fucks to give. Very few, in fact. And if you go around giving a fuck about everything and everyone without conscious thought or choice, well, then you're going to get fucked. Oof, if that's not the truth. And I know in like this podcast, I'm probably going to reference like my cancer stuff a lot because that was fucking crazy and it taught me a lot. And that's why I wanted to record this episode 
like now after because my perspective when I first started the book I was going like starting a lot of the cancer stuff and then I I everything changed so much after that whole time in my life and my perspective changed and that's when I realized like the fucks that I'm giving like my priorities were all fucked up like what I really cared about I had to actually think about what I cared about and like what was important if I was going to die tomorrow would this matter to me and I hate to say it but like that's really how I think people should be thinking obviously like YOLO do whatever you want have fun but also make sure that you are living your life for you and your happiness not for others doing things that you know bring you joy and that you're passionate about because literally you could die tomorrow and if you're not doing what you want then what's the fucking purpose of your life there is a subtle art to not giving a fuck, and though the concept may sound ridiculous and I may sound like an asshole, what I'm talking about here is essentially learning how to focus and prioritize your thoughts effectively, how to pick and choose what matters to you and what does not matter to you based on finely honed personal values. This is incredibly difficult. It takes a lifetime of practice and discipline to achieve, and you will regularly fail, but it is perhaps the most worthy struggle one can undertake in one's life. It is perhaps the only struggle in one's life. So then he goes into pretty much the numbered subtle arts of not giving a fuck and like what it means. So subtly, number one, not giving a fuck does not mean being indifferent. It means being comfortable with being different. Let's be clear, there's absolutely nothing admirable or confident about indifference. People who are indifferent are lame and scared. They're couch potatoes and internet trolls. In fact, indifferent people often attempt to be indifferent because in reality, they give way too many fucks. They give a fuck about what everyone thinks of their hair so they never bother washing or combing it. They give a fuck about what everyone thinks of their ideas so they hide behind sarcasm and self-righteous snark. They're afraid to let anyone close to them so they imagine themselves as some special unique snowflake who has problems that nobody else could ever understand there's no such thing as not giving a fuck you must give a fuck about something it's part of our biology to always care about something and therefore to always give a fuck the question then is what do we give a fuck about what are we choosing to give a fuck about and how can we not give a fuck about what ultimately does not matter subtly number two to not give a fuck about adversity you must for First, give a fuck about something more important than adversity. Imagine you're at a grocery store and you watch an elderly lady scream at the cashier, berating him for not accepting her 30 cent coupon. Why does this lady give a fuck? It's just 30 cents. I'll tell you why. That lady probably doesn't have anything better to do with her days than to sit at home cutting out coupons. She's old and lonely. Her, her kids are dickheads and never visit her. She hasn't had sex in over 30 years. She can't fart without extreme lower back pain. Her pension is on its last legs and she's probably going to die in a diaper thinking she's in Candyland. So... She snips coupons. That's all she's got. It's her and her damn coupons. It's all she can give a fuck about. There's nothing else to give a fuck about. And so when that pimply faced 17 year old cashier refuses to accept one of them, when he defends his cash registers purity the way knights used to defend maiden's virginity, you can bet granny is going to erupt. 
80 years of fucks will rain down all at once like a fiery hailstorm of back in my day and people used to show more respect stories. The problem with people who hand out fucks like ice cream at a goddamn summer camp is that we don't have anything more fuck worthy to dedicate their fucks to. If you find yourself consistently giving too many fucks about trivial shit that bothers you, your ex-boyfriend's new Facebook picture, how quickly the batteries die in the TV remote, missing out on another two-for-one sale on hand sanitizer, chances are you don't have much going on in your life to give a legitimate fuck about. And that's on facts. See, when people, like, are just rude and mean or they just give a fuck about stupid shit like people who gossip all the time and stuff I'm always like they do this shit because they literally have nothing else going on like I don't even have the time to stalk someone's Facebook page to like find shit to talk shit about them about or even care because I've got fucking book club for baddies to make okay I've got shit going on over here and that's on fucking b for b baby book clubs for baddie okay sorry getting off track he goes to say, I once heard an artist say that when a person has no problems, the mind automatically finds a way to invent some. I think when most people, especially educated, pampered, middle-class white people consider life problems are really just side effects of not having anything more important to worry about. A the fuck men. Then we go into subtly number three. Whether you realize it or not, you are always choosing what to give a fuck about. People aren't just born not to give a fuck. In fact, we're born giving way too many fucks. Ever watch a kid cry his eyes out because his hat is the wrong shade of blue? Exactly. Fuck that kid. When we're young, everything is new and exciting and everything seems to matter so much. Therefore, we give tons of fucks. We give a fuck about everything and everyone, about what people are saying about us, about whether that cute boy or girl called us back or not, about whether our socks match or not, or what color our birthday balloon is. As we get older, with the benefit of experience... And having seen so much time slip by, we begin to notice that most of these sorts of things have little lasting impact on our lives. Those people whose opinions we cared about so much before are no longer present in our lives. Rejections that were painful in the moment have actually worked out for the best. That is what I love is I have learned when something doesn't work out, like I know everybody says it, it's kind of fucking cliche, but like if it doesn't work out, it's because it wasn't meant to be and something better is on its way. And I am so ride or die for that saying because it's so true. Every time something has fucked up or knock on my way, I've cried about it, let it go, and then something better has come along. Essentially, we become more selective about the fucks we're willing to give. This is something called maturity. It's nice, you should try it sometime. Maturity is what happens when one learns to only give a fuck about what's truly fuck-worthy. As we grow older and enter middle age, something else begins to change. Our energy level drops, our identity solidifies, we know who we are and we accept ourselves, including some of the parts we aren't thrilled about. And in a strange way, this is liberating. We no longer need to give a fuck about everything. Life is just what it is. We accept it, warts and all. We realize that we're never going to cure cancer, go to the moon, or feel... Jennifer Aniston's tits. Damn, that's a letdown. And that's okay. Life goes on. We now reserve our ever-dwindling fucks for the most truly fuckworthy parts of our lives. Our families, our best friends, our golf swing, and to our astonishment, this is enough. 
See, this is like my mom. My mom is like 60 now. And like when she was entering her 50s, especially, she would say shit and she'd be like, I don't give a fuck. I'm 50 years old. I'm this, I'm that. Like, I'm too old for this shit. I don't even care what people think anymore. And I was like, damn, you're crazy, mom. But like, I totally get it too. So Mark, what is the fuck what the fuck is the point of this book anyways? So this book will help you think a little bit more clearly about what you're choosing to find important in your life and what you're choosing to find unimportant. I believe that today we're facing a psychological epidemic, one in which people no longer realize it's okay for things to suck sometimes. I know that sounds intellectually lazy on the surface, but I promise you it's life death sort of issue. Because when we believe that it's not okay for things to suck sometimes, then we unconsciously start blaming ourselves. We start to feel as though something is inherently wrong with us, which drives us to all sorts of overcompensation, like buying 40 pairs of shoes or downing Xanax with a vodka chaser on Tuesday night or shooting up a school bus full of kids. Ow. This belief that it's not okay to be inadequate sometimes is the source of the growing feedback loop from hell that is coming to dominate our culture. The idea of not giving a fuck is a simple way of reorientating our expectations for life and choosing what is important and what is not. This book does not give a fuck about alleviating your problems or your pain. Instead, this book will turn your pain into a tool, your trauma into power, and your problems into slightly better problems. That is real progress. Think of it as a guide to suffering and how to do it better, more meaningfully, with more passion and more humility. It's a book about moving lightly despite your heavy burdens, resting easier with your greatest fears, laughing at your tears as you cry them. Amen. See, I love that. This book will not teach you how to gain or achieve, but rather to lose and let go. It will teach you to take inventory of your life and scrub out all but the most important items. It will teach you to close your eyes and trust that you can fall backwards and it still be okay. It will teach you to give fewer fucks. It will teach you to not try. See, when he said um, it will teach you to trust that you can fall backwards and still be okay, my mom had told me something one time like that woman I swear to god moms are like geniuses I swear they're like god but my mom told me one time it was when my ex and I were breaking up after all of my cancer stuff and like my whole life was changing I was moving I was changing my car I was changing all my things like everything was splitting up I was taking my dog like everything my whole entire life was changing in like one moment and I just pretty much felt like like I couldn't take a step forward. Like every time I was trying to take a step forward, I kept like going back and like I had to restart again. Like, you know, I had built this whole life with this person and then it was ending and I was going back like 20 steps again. And I was just like so fucking tired. I was tired of fighting for my fucking life. I was tired for like of just dealing with everything. And my mom said, she said, well, you know what, Sid? Sometimes you have to take a couple steps back to be able to actually take a meaningful step forward. It just opened my my whole mind and eyes to everything. Like I had to take all of these steps back to really understand what was important in my life, like what my purpose is, who I am, to be able to make that actual meaningful step forward. And that has just stuck with me. So like anytime you feel like you're falling 
in reverse. I think that's like a band name or something. But anytime you feel like you you are having to go backwards, like that's going to propel you so much further forward because it's allowing you to really see everything for what it is and make something out of those lessons. Then we go into chapter two and it talks about a story that went a little bit like this. I'll try to summarize it. Um, about 2,500 years ago in the Himalayan foothills of present-day Nepal, there lived in a great palace a king who was going to have a son. For this son, the king had a particularly grand idea. He would make the child's life perfect. The child would never know a moment of suffering. Every need, every desire would be accounted for. He spoiled the child. He gave him everything he needed. The child grew up ignorant of the routine cruelties of human existence. All of the prince's childhood went on like this, but despite the endless luxury and opulence, the prince became kind of pissed off young man. He soon, every experience fell empty and valueless. The problem was that no matter what his father gave him, it never seemed enough, never meant anything. So one late night, the prince snuck out. He went behind the palace walls. He had a servant drive him through the local village, and he was horrified at what he saw. For the first time in his life, the prince saw human suffering. He saw sick people, old people, homeless people, people in pain, and people dying. When he returned to the palace, he found himself in a sort of existential crisis, not knowing how to process what he had seen. Um, it was the riches, the prince thought, that had made him so miserable, and he had made life seem so meaningless. He decided to run away. But the prince was more like his father than he knew. He had a grand idea, too. He would run away, he would give up his royalty, his family, all of his possessions, and live in the street, sleeping in dirt like an animal. He would starve himself, torture himself, and beg for scraps from food from strangers for the rest of his life. The next night, the prince snuck out. For years, he lived as a bum, a discarded and forgotten remnant of society, the dog shit caked at the bottom of the social totem pole. As he had planned, the prince suffered greatly. He suffered through disease, hunger, pain, loneliness, and decay. He confronted the brink of death itself, often limited to eating a single nut each day. Years went by, a few more, and then nothing happened. The prince began to notice that this life of suffering wasn't all that it has that it was cracked up to be. It wasn't bringing him the insight he had desired. It wasn't revealing any deeper mystery of the world or its ultimate purpose. The prince came to know that the rest of us have always kind of known. That suffering totally sucks and it's not necessarily that meaningful either. As with being rich, there's no value in suffering when it's done without purpose. And soon the prince came to the conclusion that his grand idea like his father's was in fact a fucking terrible idea and he should probably go do something else instead. He was confused. The prince cleaned himself up and went found a big tree near a river. He decided that he would sit under that tree and not get up until he came up with another great idea. As the legend goes, the confused prince sat under the tree for 49 days. One of the realizations was this, that life itself is a form of suffering. The rich suffer because of their riches and the poor suffer because of their poverty. People without a family suffer because they have no family. People with a family suffer because of their family. People who pursue worldly pleasures suffer because of their worldly pleasures. This isn't to say that all suffering is equal. Some suffering is certainly more painful than other suffering, but we all must suffer nonetheless. Years later, the prince would build his own philosophy and share it with the world, and this would be its first and central tenet, that pain and loss are inevitable, and we should let go of trying to resist them. The prince would later become known as Buddha, and in case you haven't heard of him, he was kind of a big deal. Duh. He then goes to say that happiness is not a solvable equation. This is 
dissatisfaction and unease are inherent parts of human nature and, as we'll see, necessary components to creating consistent happiness. He says, if I could invent one superhero, I would invent the disappointment panda. He would wear a cheesy eye mask and a shirt with a giant capital T on it and that was way too small for his panda belly and his superpower would be to tell people harsh truths about themselves that they needed to hear but didn't want to accept. He would say things like, sure, making a lot of money makes you feel good, but it won't make your kids love you. He would also say, if you have to ask yourself if you trust your wife, then you probably don't. Or he would say, what you consider friendship is really just your constant attempts to impress people. Disappointment Panda would be the hero none of us want, but all of us would need. So while we're here, allow me to put on my Disappointment Panda mask and drop another unpleasant truth to you. We suffer for the simple reason that suffering is biologically useful. It's nature's preferred agent for inspiring change. We have evolved to always live with a certain degree of dissatisfaction and insecurity because it's the mildly dissatisfied and insecure creature that's going to do the most work to innovate and survive. We are wired to become dissatisfied with whatever we have and satisfied by only what we do not have. This constant dissatisfaction has kept our species fighting and striving, building and conquering. So no, our pain and misery aren't a bug of human evolution. They're a feature. Pain in all of its forms is our body's most effective means of spurring action. And this pain, as much as we hate it, is useful. Pain is what teaches us what to pay attention to when we're young or careless. It helps show us that what's good for us versus what's bad for us. It helps us understand and adhere to our own limitations. It teaches us not to fuck around near hot stoves or stick metal objects into electrical sockets. Therefore, it's not always beneficial to avoid pain and seek pleasure, since pain can, at times, be life or death important to our well-being. Like physical pain, our psychological pain is an indication of something out of equilibrium, some limitation that has been exceeded. And like our physical pain, our psychological pain is not necessarily always bad or even undesirable. And this is what's so dangerous about a society that coddles itself more and more from the inevitable discomforts of life. We lose the benefits of experiencing healthy doses of pain, a loss that disconnects us from the reality of the world around us. Happiness comes from solving problems. Problems are a constant in life. When you solve your health problem by buying a gym membership, you create new problems like having to get up early to go to the gym on time, sweating like a meth head for 30 minutes on an elliptical, and then getting showered and changed for work so you don't stink up the whole office. When you solve your problem of not spending enough time with your partner by designating Wednesday night, date night, you generate new problems, such as figuring out what to do every Wednesday that you both won't hate, making sure you have enough money for nice dinners, rediscovering the chemistry and spark you to feel you've lost, and unraveling the logistics of fucking in a small bathtub filled with too many bubbles. Problems never stop. They merely get exchanged and or upgraded. Happiness comes from solving problems. The key word here is solving. If you're avoiding your problems or feel like you don't have any problems, then you're going to make yourself miserable. If you feel like you have problems that you can't solve, you will likewise make yourself miserable. The secret sauce is in the solving of problems, not in not having problems in the first place. Happiness is a constant work in progress because solving problems is a constant work in progress. The solutions to today's problems will lay the foundation for tomorrow's problems and so on. True happiness occurs only when you find the problems you enjoy having and enjoy solving. He goes on to say, whatever your problems are, the concept is the same, solve problems. 
be happy. Unfortunately for many people, life doesn't feel that simple. That's because they fuck things up in least in at least one of two ways. First is denial. Some people deny that their problems exist in the first place. Two, victim mentality. Some choose to believe that there is nothing they can do to solve their problems, even when they in fact could. People deny and blame others for their problems for simple reason that it's easy and feels good, while solving problems is hard and often feels bad. Forms of blame and denial give us a quick high. They're a way to temporarily escape our problems. Escape can provide us a quick rush that makes us feel better. Highs come in many forms, whether it's substance like alcohol, the moral righteousness that comes from blaming others, or the thrill of some new risky adventure. Highs are shallow and unproductive ways to go about one's life. Highs also generate addiction. The more you rely on them to feel better about your underlying problems, the more you will seek them out. In this sense, almost anything can become addictive, depending on the motivation behind using it. We all have our chosen methods to numb the pain of our problems, and in moderate doses, there is nothing wrong with this. But the longer we avoid and the longer we numb, the more painful it will be when we finally do confront our issues. He then goes into, emotions are overrated. Emotions evolved for one specific purpose, to help us live and reproduce a little bit better. That's it. They're feedback mechanisms telling us that something is either likely right or likely wrong for us. Nothing more, nothing less. Much as the pain of touching a hot stove teaches you not to touch it again, the sadness of being alone teaches you not to do the things that made you feel so alone again. Emotions are simply biological signals designed to nudge you in the direction of beneficial change. When it comes down to it, if you feel crappy, it's because your brain is telling you that there's a problem that's unaddressed or unresolved. In other words, negative emotions are a call to action. When you feel them, it's because you're supposed to do something. Positive emotions, on the other hand, are rewards for taking the proper action. When you feel them, life feels simple and there's nothing else to do but enjoy it. Then, like everything else, the positive emotions go away because more problems inevitably emerge. Shocker. Emotions are part of the equation of our lives, but not the entire equation. Just because something feels good doesn't mean it is good. (laughs) Isn't that the motherfucking truth? Just because, (laughs) that sounded so creepy, just because something feels bad doesn't mean it is bad. Emotions are merely signposts, suggestions that our neurobiology gives us, not commandments. Therefore, we shouldn't always trust our own emotions. In fact, I believe we should make a habit of questioning them. Many people are taught to repress their emotions for various personal, social, or cultural reasons, particularly negative emotions. Sadly, to deny one's negative emotions is to deny many of the feedback mechanisms that help a person solve problems. As a result, many of these repressed individuals struggle to deal with problems throughout their entire lives. And if they can't solve problems, then they can't be happy. Remember, pain serves a purpose. But then there are people who over-identify with their emotions. Everything is justified for no other reason than they felt it. Oh, I broke your windshield, but I was really mad. I couldn't help it. Or I dropped out of school and moved to Alaska just because it felt right. (laughs) Decision making based on emotional intuition without the aid of reason to keep it in line pretty much always sucks. You know who bases their entire lives on their emotions? Three-year-old kids and dogs. You know what else three-year-old kids and dogs do? Shit on the carpet. (sighs) Not Tootie. Tootie doesn't shit on the carpet. He knows better than that, okay? 
A fixation on happiness inevitably amounts to a never-ending pursuit of something else. A new house, a new relationship, another child, another pay raise. And despite all of our sweat and strain, we end up feeling eerily similar to how we started. Inadequate. Oh my gosh, this is, this is the truth. Psychologists sometimes refer to this concept as the hedonic treadmill, the idea that we're always working hard to change our life situation, but we actually never feel different. See, I feel like that's kind of like been my like feeling stuck. Like I had just made this video and I put it on the book club for baddies page. And it was about like me feeling stuck and like regardless of all this shit that I've been doing and accomplishing, like I just feel like the same or like I feel like stuck in, in, in a rut. I don't know. This is why our problems are recursive and unavoidable. The person you married is the person you will fight with. The house you buy is the house you repair. The dream job you take is the job you stress over. Everything comes with an, an inherent sacrifice. Whatever makes us feel good will also inevitably make us feel bad. What we gain is also what we lose. What creates our positive experiences will define our negative experiences. This is a difficult pill to swallow. We like the idea that there's some form of ultimate happiness that can be attained. We like that the idea that we can alleviate all of our suffering permanently. We like the idea that we can feel fulfilled and satisfied with our lives forever, but we cannot. Oof, and that is a hard pill to swallow. Choose your struggle. If I ask you what you want out of life and you say something like, I want to be happy and have a great family and a job I like, your response is so common and expected that it doesn't really mean anything. A more interesting question, a question that most people never consider is, what pain do you want in your life? What are you willing to struggle for? Because that seems to be a greater determinant of how our lives turn out. Because happiness requires struggle, it grows from problems. Joy doesn't just sprout out of the ground like daisies and rainbows. Real, serious, lifelong fulfillment and meaning have to be earned through choosing and managing of our struggles. Whether you suffer from anxiety or loneliness or obsessive compulsive disorder or a dickhead boss who ruins half of your waking hours every day, the solution lies in the acceptance and active engagement of that negative experience, not the avoidance of it, not the salvation from it. People want an amazing physique, but you don't end up with one unless you legitimately appreciate the pain and physical stress that comes with living inside a gym for hour upon hour unless you love calculating and calibrating the food you eat, planning your life out on a tiny plate-sized portions. People want their own business, but you don't end up a successful entrepreneur unless you find a way to appreciate the risk, the uncertainty, the repeated failures, and the insane devoted hours to something that may earn absolutely nothing. That's like that saying. Is that is it by Bob Marley? And he says like choose who's worth suffering for. Okay, okay, yeah. I just found the quote and it says, the truth is everyone's gonna hurt you. You just gotta find the worth ones worth suffering for. And that was by Bob Marley. And we all know he had a lot of great wisdom and insight, but it's the truth. Like everything's going to come with something that you have to work for and it's going to cause you some sort of pain, whether that's like wanting to become a doctor and spending years in school and then residency and all of this stuff. Like if that's what you want though, and that's what makes you happy, that pain is worth suffering for. 
He then goes into like a little story about himself. He said for most of his adolescence and young childhood, he fantasized about being a musician, a rock star. And then he says, this fantasy could keep me occupied for hours on end. For me, it was never a question of if I'd ever be up playing in front of screaming crowds. But when? I had it all planned out. I was simply biding my time before I can invest the proper amount of energy and effort into getting out there and making my mark. Then he goes into, despite my fantasizing about this for over half my lifetime, the reality never came to fruition. And it took me a long time and a lot of struggle to finally figure out why I didn't actually want it. I was in love with the result, the image of me on stage, people cheering, me rocking out, pouring my heart into what I was playing, but I wasn't in love with the process. And because of that, I failed at it repeatedly. Hell, I didn't even try hard enough to fail at it. I hardly tried at all. The daily drudgery of practicing, the logistics of finding a group and rehearsing, the pain of finding gigs and actually getting people to show up and give a shit, the broken strings, the blown tube amp, hauling 40 pounds of gear to and from rehearsal with no car. It's a mountain of a dream and a mile high climb to the top. And what it took me a long time to discover is that I didn't like the climb much. I just liked to imagine the summit. This I feel like is a lot of people. And I had a friend tell me, she had a friend who, you know, was like in her 30s and she had never been an actor ever before in her life. And like all of a sudden she had this dream of just like being an actor. And, you know, just kind of came out of nowhere and she, you know, wasn't really doing much to get it. She, you know, would take some classes here and there. I guess she like got some headshots done and was just pretty much like, all right, I'm ready. Like, I'm here. I'm gonna be an actor now. I'm gonna book stuff. And like, if I don't book something within six months, like I'm giving this shit up. And it's because she wanted the fame and the admiration and the attention that comes or can sometimes come with being on TV or in film and being an actor. But that is like the smallest piece of that puzzle. It's all of the work and the years and years and years of training and auditioning and hearing no and running yourself around to auditions or to go and get headshots to class to do all of this stuff like to actually make it to that point takes so much dedication, struggle, time, effort, consistency. And all she wanted was this little piece of what it is to be an actor. And then she gave up because that's not even what she wanted. But I feel like that's why a lot of people end up giving up on acting or their dreams is because they see this like glorified version of, of their dream and they want to be there and, and just have it all, but they don't want to put in the work. And then he goes into saying, the truth is I thought I wanted something, but it turns out I didn't. End of story. I wanted the reward and not the struggle. I wanted the result and not the process. I was in love with not the fight, but only the victory. And life doesn't work that way. Who you are is defined, but what you're willing to struggle for. People who enjoy the stresses and uncertainties of the starving artist lifestyle are ultimately the ones who live it and make it. This is not about willpower or grit. This is the most simple and basic component of life. Our struggles determine our success. Our problems birth our happiness along with slightly better, slightly upgraded problems. 
So then into chapter three, it says you are not special. And he talks about this story about this guy, Jimmy. And Jimmy always had various business ventures going on on any given day. If you asked him what he was doing, he'd rattle off the name of some firm he was consulting. He would just say like a million things. He was always like that like awesome guy, had a million things going on, super cool. He was positive all the time, always pushing himself, always working an angle, real go-getter, whatever the fuck that means. The catch was that Jimmy was also a total deadbeat, all talk and no walk, stoned majority of the time and spent as much money in bars and fine restaurants as he did on his own business ideas. Jimmy was a professional leech living off his family's hard-won money by spinning them as well as everybody else in the city on false ideas of future tech glory. Jimmy did make some money, although it was usually through the sketchiest of means, like selling another person's business idea as his own or finagling a loan from someone or worse, talking someone into giving him equity in their startup. The worst part was that Jimmy believed his own bullshit. His delusion was so bulletproof, it was honestly hard to get mad at him. It was actually kind of amazing. Sometime in the 1960s, developing high self-esteem, having positive thought and feeling about oneself became all the rage in psychology. Research found that people who thought highly about themselves generally performed better and caused fewer problems. Many researchers and policymakers at the time came to believe that raising a population's self-esteem could lead to some tangible social benefits, lower crime, better academic records, greater employment, lower budget deficits, as a result, beginning in the next decade in the 1970s, self-esteem practices began to t be taught to parents, emphasized by therapists, politicians, and teachers, and instituted into educational policy. Grade inflation, for example, was implemented to make low-achieving kids feel better about their lack of achievement. Participation awards and bogus trophies were invented for any number of mundane expected activities. But it's a generation later, and the data is in, we're not all exceptional. It turns out that merely feeling good about yourself doesn't really mean anything unless you have a good reason to feel good about yourself. It turns out that adversity and failure are actually useful and even necessary for developing strong-minded and successful adults. It turns out that teaching people to believe they're exceptional and to feel good about themselves no matter what doesn't lead to a population of Bill Gates's and Martin Luther King's. It leads to a population full of Jimmy's. Jimmy, the delusional startup founder, Jimmy, who smoked pot every day and had no real remarkable skills other than talking himself up and believing it, Jimmy, the type of guy who yelled at his business partner for being immature and then maxed out the company's credit card, trying to impress some Russian model. Jimmy, who was quickly running out of aunts and uncles who could loan him more money. Yes, that confident, high self-esteem Jimmy. The Jimmy who spent so much time talking about how good he was that he forgot to, you know, actually do something. The problem with the self-esteem movement is that it's measured self-esteem by how positively people feel about themselves. But a true and accurate measurement of one's self-worth is how people feel about the negative aspects of themselves. Entitled people exude a delusional degree of self-confidence. This confidence can be alluring to others, at least for a little while. In some instances, the entitled person's delusional level of confidence can become contagious and help the people around the entitled person 
feel more confident in themselves too. But the problem with entitlement is that it makes people need to feel good about themselves all the time, even at the expense of those around them. And because entitled people always need to feel good about themselves, they end up spending most of their time thinking about themselves. After all, it takes a lot of energy and work to convince yourself that your shit doesn't stink, especially when you've actually been living in the toilet. Oh my god, if that's not the fucking truth, like, I'm not gonna say names, but I knew someone who was just like that. Like, everything was about them. Okay, and so, like, I was talking to my therapist, and so it's, like, narcissism, and narcissists only keep you around to make themselves feel better, and as soon as you start, like, reflecting or, like, making them realize the person that they are and that they're not all that great, they'll totally discard you. Like, they're like, nope, don't need you anymore. Out of my life, bye. So, like, that's the same thing about these delusional people, which I guess you could just say they're fucking narcissists, but they need that, like, confidence and they have to keep boosting themselves up and they put problems, their problems on everybody else. It's everyone else's fault. It's never their problem. Like, every they're playing the blame game and they only keep people around them that are pumping them the fuck up all the time and then as soon as like you aren't that person you're out just thought I would like throw that in there because it's like crazy that realization that I had Entitlement closes in upon itself in a kind of narcissistic bubble, distorting anything and everything in such a way to reinforce itself. Holy fucking shit, I just like literally said about narcissists. Okay. People who feel entitled view every occurrence in their life as either an affirmation of or a threat to their own greatness. If something good happens to them, it's because of some amazing feat they accomplished. If something bad happens to them, it's because somebody is jealous and trying to bring them down a notch. Entitlement is impervious. People who are entitled delude themselves into whatever feeds their sense of superiority. Holy shit, I just said that. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. You can thank my therapist. She is doing a great job with me. <laughs> they keep their mental facade standing at all costs, even if it sometimes requires being physically or emotionally abusive to those around them. <laughs> Tell me the fuck about it. Jesus. But entitlement is a failed strategy. It's just another high. It is not happiness. The true measurement of self-worth is not how a person feels about her positive experiences, but rather how she feels about her negative experiences. Mm-hmm. A person who actually has high self-worth is able to look at the negative parts of their character, frankly. Yes, sometimes I'm irresponsible with money. Yes, sometimes I exaggerate my own success. Yes, I rely too much on others to support me and should be more self-reliant. And then acts to improve upon them. But entitled people, because they are incapable of acknowledging their own problems openly and honestly, are incapable of improving their lives in any lasting or meaningful way. They are left chasing high after high and accumulate greater and greater levels of denial. But eventually, reality must hit and the underlying problems will once again make themselves clear. It's just a question of when and how painful it will be. Then the author goes into like a story about him growing up and and then ultimately like his parents divorcing, him going to therapy and he said, I don't blame them for any of this. 
not anymore at least, and I love them very much. They have their own stories and their own journeys and their own problems, blah, blah, blah. And then he says, when real traumatic shit like this happens in our lives, we begin to unconsciously feel as though we have problems that we are incapable of ever solving. And this assumed inability to solve our own problems causes us to feel miserable and helpless, but it also causes something else to happen. If we have problems that are unsolvable, our unconscious figures that they're either uniquely special or uniquely defective in some way that we're somehow unlike everyone else and that the rules must be different for us put simply we become entitled the pain from my adolescence led me down a road of entitlement that lasted much of my early adulthood my trauma had revolved around intimacy and acceptance so i felt constant a constant need to overcompensate to prove myself that i was loved and accepted at all times and as a result i soon took to chasing women the same way a cocaine addict takes to snowman made out of cocaine takes to a snowman made out of okay I made sweet love to it and then promptly suffocated myself in it I became a player an immature selfish charming player I strung up a long series of superficial unhealthy relationships for the better part of a decade while this period certainly had its moments of fun and excitement I met some wonderful women my life was more or less a wreck the whole time I was often unemployed living on my friend's couch or with my mom, drinking way more than I should have been, alienating a number of my friends, and when I did meet a woman I really liked, my self-absorption quickly torpedoed everything. The deeper pain, the more helpless we feel against our problems and more entitlement we adopt to compensate for those problems. This entitlement plays out in one of two ways. I'm awesome and the rest of you all suck so I deserve special treatment, or I suck and the rest of you are all awesome so I deserve special treatment. The truth is that there's no such thing as a personal problem. If you've got a problem, chances are millions of other people have had it in the past, have it now, and are going to have it in the future. Likely, people you know too. That doesn't minimize the problem or mean that it shouldn't hurt. It doesn't mean that you aren't legitimately a victim in some circumstance. It just means that you're not special. Often, it's this realization that you and your problems are actually not privileged in their severity or pain. That is the first and most important step towards solving them. But for some reason, it appears that more and more people, particularly young people, are forgetting this. Numerous professors and educators have noted a lack of emotional resilience and excess of selfish demands in today's young people. It is not uncommon now for books to be removed from a class's curriculum for no other reason than they made someone feel bad. School counselors note that more students than ever are exhibiting severe signs of emotional distress over what are otherwise run-of-the-mill daily college experiences such as arguments with roommate or getting a low grade in class. It's strange that in an age where we are more connected than ever, entitlement seems to be an all-time high. Something about recent technology seems to allow our insecurities to run amok like never before. The more freedom we're given to express ourselves, the more we want to be free of having to deal with anyone who may disagree with us or upset us. The more exposed we are to opposing viewpoints, the more we seem to get upset that those other viewpoints exist. The easier and more problem-free our lives become, the more we seem to feel entitled for them to get even better. The benefits of the internet and social media are unquestionably fantastic. In many ways, this is the best time in history to be alive, but perhaps these technologies are having some unintended social side effects. Perhaps these same technologies that have liberated and educated so many are simultaneously enabling people's sense of entitlement more than ever.
Then he goes into saying, most of us are pretty average at most things we do. Even if you're exceptional at one thing, chances are you're pretty average or below average at most other things. This is kind of just what he talks about pretty much through the rest of this chapter. Uh, because we are all quite average most of the time, the del deluge of exceptional information drives us to feel pretty damn insecure and desperate because clearly we are somehow not good enough. So more and more we feel the need to compensate through entitlement and addiction. Some of us do this by cooking up a get-rich-quick scheme. Others do it by taking off across the world to save starving babies in Africa. Others do it by excelling in school and winning every award. Others do it by shooting up the school. Others do it by trying to be trying to have sex with anything that talks and breathes. This ties into the growing culture of entitlement that I talked about earlier. Millennials often get blamed for this cultural shift, but that's likely because millennials are the most plugged in and visible generation. The problem is that the pervasiveness of technology and mass marketing is screwing up a lot of people's expectations for themselves. The inundation of the exceptional makes people feel worse about themselves, makes them feel that they need to be more extreme, more radical, and more self-assured to get noticed or even matter. Then he goes into, B -b -b but if I'm not going to be special or extraordinary, what's the point? It has become an accepted part of our culture today to believe that we are all destined to do something truly extraordinary. Celebrities say it, business tycoons say it, politicians say it, even Oprah says it. So it must be true. Each and every one of us can be extraordinary. We all deserve greatness. The fact that this statement is inherently contradictory, after all, if everyone were extraordinary, then by definition, no one would be extraordinary, is missed by most people. And instead of questioning what we actually deserve or don't deserve, we eat the message up and ask for more. Being average has become the new standard of failure. The worst thing you can be is in the middle of the pack, the middle of the bell curve. When a culture's standard of success is to be extraordinary, then it becomes better to be at the extreme low end of the bell curve than to be in the middle, because at least you're still special and deserve some attention. Many people choose this strategy to prove to everyone that they're the most miserable or the most oppressed or the most victimized. A lot of people are afraid to accept mediocrity because they believe that if they accept it, they'll never achieve anything, never improve, and that their life won't matter. This sort of thinking is dangerous. Once you accept the premise that life is worthwhile only if it's truly notable and great, then you basically accept the fact that most of the human population, including yourself, sucks and is worthless. And this mindset can quickly turn dangerous to both yourself and others. The rare people who do become truly exceptional at something do so not because they believe they're exceptional. On the contrary, they become amazing because they're obsessed with improvement. And that obsession with improvement stems from an unearing belief that they are in fact not that great at all. It's anti-entitlement. People who become great at something become great because they understand that they're not already great. They are mediocre. They are average and they could do so much better. That is such a huge problem that we have is that we all want and expect our lives to just be so crazy awesome all the time. And, and like I said, with social media, all we see are people posting the best parts of their lives. And so we're thinking, oh my gosh, this person's life is so great all the time but it's not. And then when we're constantly comparing ourselves to this and we aren't doing 
half the shit these other people are doing or like celebrities are doing or whatever, then we just feel extremely disappointed in our lives when we actually have beautiful lives. Like going and taking Leo to the park and spending time outside and acknowledging the beautiful flowers and all of this stuff is like the true meaning of life. Like being able to see and touch and smell and experience all of this great thing. Great things is what 90% of our life is like consisted of. And so as long as we keep, as long as we keep hyper focusing on living this extraordinary life, we're just not being in love with the life that we're living. And then you're wasting your whole time and your whole life comparing and being unhappy. Then we go into the last chapter for this episode and it's the value of suffering. So he goes in and in this book, he does a lot of like story time about like these different stories of people to just kind of try to stitch everything together, which is great, but I try to like condense it for you. Um, but he goes into talking about this story of um, in the closing months of 1944, after almost a decade of the war, the tide was turning against Japan. Their economy was floundering, their military overstretched across half of Asia, and the territories they won throughout the Pacific were now toppling like dominoes to U.S. forces. Defeat seemed inevitable. On December 26, 1944, 2nd Lieutenant Hiru Onoda of the Japanese Imperial Army was deployed to a small island of Lubang in the Philippines. His orders were to slow the United States' progress as much as possible, fight at all costs, never surrender. Both he and his commander knew it was essentially a suicide mission. In February 1945, Americans arrived in Lubang and took the island with overwhelming force. Within days, most of Japan's soldiers had either surrendered or been killed, but Onanda and three of his men managed to hide in the jungle. From there, they began a warfare campaign against U.S. forces and the local population attacking supply lines, shooting at stray soldiers, and interfering with American forces in any ways that they could. Half a year later, United States dropped atomic bombs on the cities of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Japan surrendered in the deadliest war in human history came to its most dramatic conclusion. However, thousands of Japanese soldiers were still scattered in the Pacific Isles, and most, like Onanda, were hiding in the jungle, unaware that the war was over. They continued to fight and pillage as they had before. The U.S. military, in conjunction with Japanese government, dropped thousands of leaflets throughout the Pacific region, announcing that the war was over and it was time for everyone to go home. Onanda and his men, like many others, found and read these leaflets, but unlike most of the others, Onanda decided that they were fake, a trap set by the American forces to get these fighters to show themselves. He burned the leaflets and he and his men stayed hidden and continued to fight. Five years went by. The leaflets had stopped and most American forces had long since been gone. Yet there were Hiru, Ananda, and his merry men still shooting at farmers, burning their crops, stealing their livestock, and murdering locals who wandered too far into the jungle. The Philippine government then took to drawing up new flyers and spreading them across the jungle. Come out, they said, the war is over, you lost. But these two were ignored. In 1952, the Japanese government made a final effort to draw the last remaining soldiers out of hiding throughout the Pacific. The letters and pictures from the missing soldiers' families were airdropped along with personal notes from the emperor himself. Once again, Onanda refused to believe that this information was real. Once again, he believed the airdrop was a trick by the Americans. Once again, he and his man stood and continued to fight. 
Another few years went by and the Philippine locals, sick of being terrorized, finally armed themselves and began firing back. By 1959, one of Ananda's Companions had surrendered and another had been killed. Then, a decade later, Ananda's last companion, a man called Kozuka, was killed in a shootout with local police while he was burning rice fields, still waging war against the local population, a full quarter century after the end of World War II. Onanda, having now spent more than half of his life in the jungles of Lubang, was all alone. In 1972, news of Kazuka's death reached Japan and caused a stir. The Japanese people thought the last of the soldiers from the war had come home years earlier. The Japanese media began to wonder if Kazuka had still been on Lubang until 1972, then perhaps Onanda himself, the last known Japanese holdout from World War II, might still be alive. That year, both the Japanese and Philippine government sent search parties and they found nothing. As months progressed, the story of Lieutenant Onanda morphed into something of an urban legend in Japan. It was around this time that a young man, Norio Suzuki, first heard of, heard of Onanda. Suzuki was an adventurer. He was an, a hippie and an explorer. The legend of Hairu Onanda came as an answer to Suzuki's problems. He wanted another adventure. It was a new and worthy adventure for him to pursue. Suzuki believed that he would be the one to find Onanda. Suzuki traveled to Lubang and began wandering around the jungle all by himself. His strategy, scream Onanda's name really loud and tell him that he, the emperor was worried about him. He found Onanda in four days. Suzuki asked Onanda why he had stayed and continued to fight and Onanda said it was simple. He had been given the order to never surrender so he stayed. For nearly 30 years he had simply been following in order. The two men had been brought together by a curious of circumstances, two well-intentioned adventurers chasing false visions of glory. Later in his life, Onanda said he regretted nothing. He claimed that he was proud of his choices in his time on Lubang. He said that it had been an honor to devote a sizable portion of his life in service to a non-existent empire. These men both chose how they wished to suffer. Hairu Onanda chose to suffer for loyalty to a dead empire. Suzuki chose to suffer for adventure no matter how ill-advised. To both men, their suffering meant something. It fulfilled some greater cause, and because it meant something, they were able to endure it or perhaps even enjoy it. If suffering is inevitable, if our problems in life are unavoidable, then the question we should be asking is not, how do I stop suffering, but why am I suffering, for what purpose? Then he goes into the self-awareness onion. Self-awareness is like an onion. There are multiple layers to it, and the more you peel them back, the more likely you're going to start crying at inappropriate times. Let's say the first layer of the self-awareness onion is a simple understanding of one's emotions. This is, when I feel happy, this makes me feel sad, this gives me hope. Unfortunately, there are many people who suck at even the most basic level of self-awareness. We all have emotional blind spots. Often they have to do with the emotions that we were taught were inappropriate growing up. It takes years of practice and effort to get good at identifying blind spots in ourselves and then expressing the affected emotion appropriately. But this is hugely important and worth the effort. The second layer of the self-awareness Awareness onion is an ability to ask why we feel certain emotions. These why questions are difficult and often take months or even years to answer consistently and accurately. Most people need to go to some sort of therapist just to hear these questions asked for the first time. Such questions are important because they illuminate what we consider success or failure. This layer of questioning helps us understand the root cause of the emotions that overwhelm us. Once we understand that root cause, we can ideally do something to 
change it. But there's another even deeper level of self-awareness onion, and that one is full of fucking tears. The third level is our personal values. Why do I consider this to be success or failure? How am I choosing to measure myself? By what standard am I judging myself and everyone else around me? This level, which takes consistent questioning and effort, is incredibly difficult to reach, but it's the most important because our values determine the nature of our problems and the nature of our problems determine the quality of our life. Values underlie everything we are and do. If what we value is unhelpful, if what we consider success failure is poorly chosen, then everything based upon those values, the thoughts, the emotions, the day-to-day -day feelings will be all out of whack. For many people, this passes as self-awareness, and yet if they were able to go deeper and look at their underlying values, they would see that their original analysis was based on avoiding responsibility for their own problems rather than accurately identifying the problem. They would see that their decisions were based on chasing highs, not generating true happiness. Honest self-questioning is difficult. It requires asking yourself simple questions that are uncomfortable to answer. In fact, in my experience, the more uncomfortable the answer, the more likely it is to be true. In this part, he then goes into like another story about like these two artists and like how they value their own success. He talks about this one rock star who ended up leaving a band or getting kicked out and then he goes to make his own band and becomes like wildly successful, but... but uh, but compared to the first band that he was in, he's nowhere near as successful as them. So he looks at himself as not being successful because he's not as famous as his previous band, but compared to anyone else who's not a fucking rock star, he's like extremely famous and popular and successful. So it's ultimately like what you're comparing your life to and what you're looking and like what your own values of success and failure are and how that can actually really fuck you up. Because if you are comparing yourself to someone else or something else or this vision of yourself and you never achieve it, you'll never realize how truly successful you've become. So he goes into shitty values. There are a handful of common values that create really poor problems for people. Problems that can hardly be solved. So let's go over some of them quickly. Number one, pleasure. Pleasure is great, but it's horrible value to prioritize your life around. Ask any drug addict how his pursuit of pleasure turned out. Ask an adulterer who shattered her family and lost her children whether pleasure ultimately made her happy. Pleasure is a false god. Research shows that people who focus their energy on superficial pleasures end up more anxious, more emotionally unstable, and more depressed. Pleasure is the most superficial form of life satisfaction and therefore the easiest to obtain and the easiest to lose. Number two, material success. Many people measure their self-worth based on how much money they make or what kind of car they drive or whether their front lawn is greener and prettier than the next door neighbors. Research shows that once one is able to provide for basic physical needs, the correlation between happiness and worldly success quickly approaches zero. So if you're starving and living in the street in the middle of India, an extra $10,000 a year would affect your happiness a lot. But if you're sitting pretty in the middle class in a developed country, an extra $10,000 per year won't affect anything much, meaning that you're killing yourself working overtime and weekends for basically nothing. 
The other issue with overvaluing material success is the danger of prioritizing it over other values such as honesty, nonviolence, and compassion. Number three, always being right. Our brains are inefficient machines. We constantly make poor assumptions, misjudge probabilities, misremember facts, give into the cognitive biases, and make decisions based on our emotional whims. As humans, we are wrong pretty much constantly. So if your metric for success is to be right, well, you're going to have a difficult time rationalizing all of the bullshit to yourself. The fact is people who base their self-worth on being right about everything prevent themselves from learning from their mistakes. They lack the ability to take on new perspective and empathize with others. That is the fucking truth. Number four, staying positive. Then there are those who measure their lives by the ability to be positive about, well, pretty much everything. Lost your job? Great. That's an opportunity to explore your passions. Husband cheats on you with your sister? Well, at least you're learning what you really mean to the people around you. Child dying of throat cancer? At least you don't have to pay for college anymore. (laughs) Fucked up. While there is something to be said for staying on the sunny side of life, the truth is sometimes life sucks and the healthiest thing you can do is admit it. Denying negative emotions leads to experiencing deeper and more prolonged negative emotions into emotional dysfunction. Constant positivity is a form of avoidance, not a valid solution to life's problems. Which, by the way, if you're choosing the right values and metrics, should be invigorating you and motivating you. The trick with negative emotions is to one, express them in a socially acceptable and healthy manner, and two, express them in a way that aligns with your values. When we force ourselves to stay positive at all times, we deny the existence of our life's problems. And when we deny our problems, we rob ourselves of the chance to solve them and generate happiness. Problems add to a sense of meaning and importance to our life. Then we go into defining good and bad values. Good values are reality-based, socially constructive, and immediate and controllable. Bad values are superstitious, socially destructive, and not immediate or controllable. Some examples of bad unhealthy values include dominance through manipulation or violence, indiscriminate fucking, feeling good all the time, always being the center of attention, not being alone, being liked by everyone, being rich for the sake of being rich, and sacrificing small animals to the pagan gods. Damn. Well, I guess I'll have to take that one off my list. Values are about prioritization. Everyone would love a good cannoli or a house in the Bahamas. The question is your priorities. What are the values that you prioritize above everything else and that therefore influence your decision-making more than anything? When we have poor values, that is poor standards we set for ourselves and others, we are essentially giving fucks about things that don't matter, things that in fact make our life worse. But when we choose better values, we are able to divert our fucks to something better, towards something that matters, things that improve the state of our well-being, and that generate happiness, pleasure, and success as side effects. This, in a nutshell, is what self-improvement is really about. Prioritizing better values, choosing better things to give a fuck about, because when you give better fucks, you get better problems. And when you get better problems, you get a better life. So the rest of this book is dedicated to five counterintuitive values that I believe are the most beneficial values one can adopt. These five values are both unconventional and uncomfortable, but to me, they are life changing. So awesome. That is like the first half of the book. I know it's a lot. I try my best to like condense it, but 
you know, there's just always so much good shit in these books. It's just like really hard. But the next episode will be over the last half of the book. And I hope that you guys are enjoying it as much as I've enjoyed it so far. This book has a lot of cuss words. So sorry if you don't like to hear that. And if you do, this is the fucking book for you. Because it's dropping the F-bomb like every other page. And I love it. But that concludes the first portion, first half of the book. And then the next episode will be the last half. And yeah. So thank you so much for sticking around and listening. And have an amazing rest of your day, night, <clears throat> whatever you're doing. And remember to... Stop giving a fuck as much and only give a fuck about the fucks that need to be given a fuck about. All right. Love you, baddies.